Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week on the show, it's uh, really all about uh, stagflation, recession. Are we going to have one? So we're asking Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP about that. As for the effect on the market, we're talking to James Gerrish, Portfolio Manager at Shore & Partners and author of Market Matters. Politics seems to be settling down, particularly with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, travelling so much. But uh, we're talking to Kieran Gilbert, Chief News Anchor at Sky News, about what's going on in politics and I thought that given the fact that we've got a whole lot of new COVID cases going on, in fact, Australia's got the highest number per head of population in the world of cases and deaths at the moment, I thought it would be a good time to check in with an epidemiologist about how worried we should be about what's going on. So we've got Professor Adrian Esterman, who's the Chair of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of South Australia. And now he's Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP. Well, Shane, are we going to have a recession? Well, I'm modestly um, hopeful that we will avoid it, um, but I'd have to say the risk has gone up significantly. I mean, the basic problem is that we've got a, a big inflation problem. The central bank is committed to getting inflation back to its target range within a reasonable time frame. That's entailing a fairly rapid rise in interest rates. And of course, we're seeing a similar phenomenon globally. Uh, and at the time of cost of living pressures, you know, the risk is that that uh, tips us into recession. I think there is a path though where we can avoid it. Um, and this is my base case. And it basically um, involves the supply side pressures, which are largely driving inflation, gradually coming under control at a time when demand slows a little bit. That takes pressure off inflation, enabling central banks to sort of get their foot off the brake or ease up um, in time to avoid a recession. Uh, so that's that's my base case, but I'd have to say the risk of a mistake here is quite high. You had a piece that you put out a note this week talking about Australia's Achilles heel, which is the high household debt, which was kind of um, similar in some ways to a lot of what the Bank for International Settlements said in its annual economic report the other day. Um, and when it, it was talking about... Um, the problem of financial vulnerabilities, um, which are which is high debt levels, which it says um, often, or more often than not, uh, result in a hard landing. So in a way, you're kind of uh, talking about the same thing, aren't you? Yeah, and I'm conscious of that. If, if you look at the US, I mean, US household debt, believe it or not, is actually quite low. Uh, that they've got their household debt to income ratio, I think it's around 100%, you know, which sounds high, but in Australia it's about 180% or 187%. In other words, for every $100 worth of after-tax household income in Australia, there's $187 worth of debt. Now, back in 1970, that ratio was about 30 or 40. <laughs> so we've seen a massive increase in debt over the years, and we've gone from the low end of OECD countries or comparable countries to the high end. Uh, whereas the US saw a surge going into the GFC, and then since then, it's actually seen its debt ratios come back um, relative to what they were prior to the GFC. So they, they don't have that same household debt risk that we have in Australia. I guess an optimist looks at it and says, well, you know, we've seen massive gains in house prices and the value of superannuation and the share market and huge amount of money piled up in bank deposits. So household wealth has increased faster than household debt. But the problem is that you don't service, you don't pay higher interest payments out of your wealth, you pay it out of your income. And that's where the stress and strain will be in Australia, that there's a bunch of people who've borrowed big 
over the last few years to get into the property market, thinking they've got two years of low interest rates ahead of them because the Reserve Bank kept saying they didn't expect to raise interest rates until 2024 and suddenly they find it's a different ball game. And those, those, that group, I think, would bear significant risk, even though um, they've got a house which technically still has a high value attached to it. And then, of course, you've got this risk that you know, a big chunk of the gains in property prices over the last 20 or 30 years are to very low interest rates. And if we go into a world of higher interest rates, then property prices will probably be lower. So the bottom line is, yes, there is a degree of vulnerability in Australia given those high debt levels, and hopefully the Reserve Bank will adequately allow for that and won't raise interest rates so much that it that it destroys the economy in the process. And I think that's where the Reserve Bank has to be very nimble here. Yes, it can raise interest rates by more than normal initially in the cycle to, to reinforce expectations that inflation will come back down, but by the same token, it doesn't want to get so aggressive that it uh, causes big problems in the in the household sector. The Bank for International Settlements also talked about stagflation and, and said that um, that's appears to be what we're in for. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, I'd have to say yes. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, most cyclical economic downturns have an element of stagflation because economic growth slows, but inflation lags the economic cycle and it stays high for a while. Um, but I guess the sort of stagflation that BIS is referring to is something like what we saw in the 1970s, which was yeah, more higher inflation for longer and weaker economic growth, you know, potentially stagnation. So that's that's certainly a risk here that even if you don't get a recession, we could be in for a period of a very subdued growth uh, at the same time that inflation is still relatively high. And, so, and stagflation is uh, is not good at all for equity markets, is it? It's certainly not. Uh, I mean, a lot of people might have fond memories of the 1970s. I did. I grew up in, in that era. But um, economically, it wasn't a good time. Uh, it was the time when inflation was high and unemployment uh, rose. I know it was very low in 1974, as we keep hearing. We've gone back to 1974. Um, but thereafter, we saw unemployment go up in a step fashion. And of course, that environment was actually very poor for investments. Um, it was obviously horrible for government bonds because bond yields generally rose right through the decade. Uh, it was also poor for shares. We had several significant bear markets, most notable in 1973-74. I like to joke that shares fell 59% at the time because my favourite TV show, The Brady Bunch, was canned, but I'm sure there was other things involved and stagflation was a big factor in that. Uh, and um, The Brady Bunch? It, what are you talking about, Shane? Well, it was a good TV show. Lots of good life lessons from the Brady Bunch. You know, how to get on with your siblings and how to be nice to people. Mr. Brady used to give people little talks at his den down the bottom there. And and I aspired to what they had. I wanted a huge convertible like they had where you can get out the door without having to, the person in front uh, having to get out of the way. Uh, but anyway. Well, no, um, that, that's a new theory for equity market <laughs> analysis, uh, Shane. But the, no, it's always we're always learning something new around here. We certainly are. But uh, anyway, I mean, there were good things in the 1970s, but it wasn't a good time for investment returns, which is partly why you can make an argument that, you know, we really do want to get inflation back down again. Uh, and that's why central banks are suddenly taking it serious, seriously. And obviously, though, that comes with short-term costs, mm -hmm. uh, potentially, and this risk of, of recession. But come to think of it, I mean, I'd, I'd rather get back to a lower inflation world. Um, then let the 1970s uh, play, out, play out all over again. Yes, indeed. All right. Very good. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Alan. 
Now he's James Gerrish, Portfolio Manager at Shore and Partners and author of the newsletter Market Matters. Well, James, the share market doesn't know whether to laugh or cry at the moment, whether to worry about stagflation or think that things are going to be okay. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty similar, Alan. I think, you know, we've obviously had this concern around, um, you know, how quickly interest rates have risen. Um, uh, but now we've had interest rates in the last week or so pull back. So, you know, if I look at bond yields in Australia, um, you know, the Aussie three-year bond yield's gone from 3.7% down to 3.2. And that's all, as you rightly point out, concerns around uh, a looming recession. But, you know, I would argue the market is potentially you know is 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 pricing a high probability of that happening already the asx is down sort of 16 percent the us market's down 25 percent um so there's already been equity pricing uh, of this you know apparent apparent looming recession you wonder whether 16 percent would be enough if there's a recession yeah, I think, you know, I look back in history and, and, and recession-led declines in the market have, um, you know, the average decline is 24%. Um, so then, you know, that implies that it's not enough. There has been obviously bigger corrections in the market, um, uh, but they're generally for other reasons. So, you know, the global financial crisis happened. That was down more than 50%. There's been some, you know, the tech wreck, et cetera. There's been other examples of, of deeper corrections that are nearing a, you know, that are more towards... 50%, but if we have a stock standard recession, then you know, then 24% is the, the typical decline that we see in, in stocks. And you, know, you, you can make the argument the US is already there. What's your view about the valuation of the market at the moment? Well, valuation, there's, a, there's two things to that component. There's a P and there's an E. So we've always obviously got the price. Um, we're about to get the, the E side of the equation. So uh, four year reporting's coming up and that's gonna dictate um, you know, whether whether or not the market is fairly valued, overvalued or undervalued. So, and I think it's going to be, I think earnings will hold up reasonably well for the reporting period that we've just been through. Outlook statements may, may be a little bit tepid, but um, overall, I mean, we're going to get a good read, read on it sooner or later, um, Alan. But I think some areas of the market have been sold off very aggressively. So, um, you know, the retailers are obviously a case in point. If we use something like a super retail group as your proxy on the on the sector, it's trading at a 20% discount to its normal PE. So it normally trades on 12 times, it's trading on 10 times. Is that enough of a buffer for the economic and, you know, the economic climate we're operating in? Um, it could well be. What does your recession-proof portfolio look like? I don't, um, a recession-proof portfolio, I think you can have portfolios that will do better during a recession. So the, the normal things that people, um, you know, um, oscillate to is companies with pricing power, things that you need to buy. Um, so you think about, you know, the retailers, you're going more towards the staples rather than the discretionary retailers. But, you know, within discretionary retailers, there's different levels of discretion. Um, so, um, you yeah, that's something to consider as well. Uh, we've just, you know, in the last week or so, we've transitioned more towards the resource sector into recent weakness. I know that is sort of counterintuitive given if we have an economic slowdown, um, then resources are exposed to, you know, the, the, the broader strength or otherwise of the global economy. But these, these have been sold down fairly aggressively in the last little while. It's also important to think that markets price the future, they don't price the now. So, um, you know, in the case of um, some of these retailers, some of the property companies, um, you know, the, the, the sell-offs of 30 to 40% is already pricing a recession. 
So I don't think um, amending a portfolio to be recession-proof now after the horse has bolted is, is necessarily a great way to, to go about it. And what do you think of banks at a time like this? Well, banks are like going into, I guess this is one of the reasons why I don't think the market's going to have more of a, you know, a, a 40 to 50% correction. It, it may just be a 20% correction that we've more or less had now. Um, you know, banks are incredibly well capitalised. Um, we had the, you know, spoke to the CEO of, or the MD of Bank of Queensland last week just around asset quality and the impact of rising interest rates across their book, et cetera. So they're, you know, banks are very well capitalised. They haven't got any issues around asset quality at this stage. Um, you know, in Bank of Queensland's case, the average borrower was 15, 15 months ahead on their repayments. They had less than 1% of their book with an LVR greater than 90%. I think, um, you know, banks are, banks, um, are uh, financially sound at the moment. Um, I don't know what's going to, um, you know, if the, we do have a major deterioration and property prices come back, but I think there's still a lot of fat there at the, the moment. So they're not going into this um, economic downturn in bad shape. They're going in, in incredibly good shape. Yeah. Great to talk to you, James. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. And now on politics, here's Kieran Gilbert, Chief News Anchor at Sky News. Kieran, we've had a few weeks now of uh, the Albanese government. What do you think politics looks like over the next three years? Well, it seems like it's got into a bit of a rhythm already, Alan, and it's hard to be critical of much of what they've done so far. You look at on a few different fronts, they've faced some challenging moments, like on the energy crisis. Bowen, I think, by most people's measure, has done well. Chalmers preparing his economic statement for the end of July when Parliament returns has been pretty methodical so far. I guess we can make a full judgment come the budget in October. But And uh, Albanese and Wong on the international stage, uh, very sort of sure-footed. I don't think he can be critical at this point of anything they've done. And uh, uh, yesterday we had the all the new... And the newbies in Parliament, including all of the uh, of the independents, so Parliament's going to yeah. be a different different place to operate, isn't it? It really is, and they're adamant. Uh, I spoke to a few of them yesterday. They're really focused on changing the the culture. They're annoyed at Albanese and, and Co for reducing their staffing allocation, but I don't get the sense, certainly from the Teal independents and from David Pocock and others, that. They're not going to vote against legislation on that basis. I mean, they're annoyed, sure, but that's not the culture they want to bring to the place. Albanese is not going to back down on this one, Alan. He feels it's a it was a bit of a rort that the cross benches under Scott Morrison and the coalition uh, attracted more staffing, and it was actually four more staff, double the staff that a, a, another backbencher would get. He's agreed to give them one extra and he believes that's sufficient and he won't be backing down from that. And so you don't think they'll be prickly, I mean, and more difficult to deal with? They, they, they might be a bit prickly, but I don't think it's going to affect legislation. And they might uh, seek, they might push and, and try and get maybe one extra staff member, uh, but the likes of Kylie Tink from North Sydney, uh, Pocock, uh, Allegra Spender from Wentworth. I, I don't believe that they will use their vote on serious issues as a protest on uh, on this. And uh, we'll, we'll see, but I think that their whole, their whole modus operandi has been to improve the culture of the place and to start by, you know, using their vote as a protest, I don't think would be the right way to go. I don't think they'll do that. But having said that, 
Pauline Hens and Jackie Lambie, um, that's an entirely different kettle of fish. Well, they are indeed different kettles of fish, aren't they? But uh, what, what, yeah. are you, uh, what are you preparing for as the big issues for this year? Um, well, still, the big one is, is the China relationship. That's the, that's the massive one and continues to be so. Um, that's the backdrop, I think, for everything really in terms of economic relations. It looks like things have settled down a bit, a bit of a rapprochement maybe coming, but the way the government describes it to me is that it's inch by inch. Uh, they don't want to cede uh, too much ground on the basis of no compromise from the Chinese front when it comes to those trade sanctions. To me, this is the backdrop to really everything, Alan, not just for this year, but the next decade or more. This behemoth in our region, still our largest trading partner, but our greatest sensitivity on the strategic and security front. Yeah. So um, do you think it's going to be a kind of a, uh, a, bu- I mean, a busy time? Or do you think the opposition is going to be uh, difficult to deal with? I mean, how, how are they looking, do you think? They're just finding their feet, I think. Uh, Dutton's made a couple of good calls where he's not just opposing everything for the sake of it, where you know, an example of that was yesterday. The chief of the defence had his year, a couple of uh, years extended to his tenure. Uh, he was very warm in supporting of that. He said he was also supportive of Albanese being at NATO and other things. So it's not just all negative at this point. I think he's right to do that. I would actually say to him if he wants, if, you know, if I was advising him, really make more of that because he needs to try and change his or broaden his persona in the eyes of the electorate. At the moment, he's seen as that hard head, the head kicker in uh, you know security and defence and um, border protection. He needs to broaden his his persona if he's going to be any chance. I think in three years. Mm. Well, it'll be very interesting to watch. Thanks very much, Kieran. Pleasure, Alan. Chat soon. And now here's Professor Adrian Esterman, Chair of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the University of South Australia. Well, Adrian, I was looking at the COVID data this morning and um, Australia has the most cases and deaths per head of population in the world. How worried should we be? Well, look, um, I'm worried and most epidemiologists would be worried, but unfortunately the government doesn't seem to be worried or shall we say state and territory governments and federal government don't appear to be worried and most people think it's all over. Yeah, but the, but it doesn't appear to be all over. So, I mean, what do you do? You think we're heading into a period where we'll have to have more measures against COVID, such as lockdowns? God forbid. Uh, look, I think the the days of lockdowns are, are over, well and truly. I think the only reason we might possibly have further lockdowns was if a new variant came along that was as transmissible or more transmissible than BA point five was much more severe and that's probably unlikely at this stage but it could happen so um how, how is it i mean the the, the cases uh, i'm just looking at it now i mean the cases per head of population are back where they were when you know when the lockdowns were in force um you know uh, back in 2020 and 2021 so uh, is it simply because we've got more immunity now more people are vaccinated and have had it certainly we are better protected because such a high percentage of the population have either uh, been infected or been vaccinated. But one of the problems is that uh, it's really that third dose of vaccine that gives us the most protection for most people. 
and only 68% of eligible people in Australia have had that third dose, which is not high enough. The other factor that has uh, come to light is that the new subvariants BA.5 and BA.4 are much more transmissible than BA.2. Are they, and, are they what we call Omicron? Yes, they're all Omicron. So Omicron has got, uh, basically it's got, if you think of Omicron as the parent, it's, it's, got, it's got five children. So BA.1, which was the original Omicron infection that hit us at the beginning of the year. Then we have BA.2, which hit us in April and caused another big wave. BA.3 never took off. And um, it's probably got some mutations that make it less likely to transmit than, say, BA.1. And now we've got BA.4 and BA.5, which, like the other three, were first discovered in South Africa. And they are even more transmissible. In fact, they are um, as transmissible now as measles, which, which until now was our most infectious disease. So we're reaching the stage now where, where Omicron subvariants are as infectious as our most transmissible disease that we know about. Uh, and, of course, there's, there is no upper limit to transmissibility. So in, in several countries like uh, Portugal, for example, BA.5 has just taken over. It will take over here. It's done it fairly slowly, but it's rapidly increasing. So like three or four weeks ago, it was probably 10% of all cases. It's probably more like 40% of cases in Australia, and it will eventually be almost 100% of cases in Australia. So what's that? What that's causing is we're starting to see hospitalizations go up, and that's been happening steadily over June. We certainly see deaths go up, uh, and they've gone up substantially. So for example, um, in early April, we were looking at 20 deaths a day, and we're now looking at 50. So it's more than doubled in a short period of time. Um, we will see more and more people reinfected because these new subvariants, BA.5 and BA.4, are better able to evade our immunity either from vaccination or infection. Uh, so and then, what's the difference between a variant and a subvariant? Okay, so, so it's all a bit uh, obscure. Um, when the original variants occurred, they were given Greek letters by WHO. So we had alpha and beta and gamma and delta. And then, of course, Omicron came along and they skipped out a couple of Greek letters because the Greek letters would have been confusing. But then we started getting subvariants. And in reality, these subvariants are as different from each other than alpha and beta, for example. But nonetheless, um, it was decided to not call them new Greek letters but the, instead to call them a different type of um, uh, system, and they're, they're called BA.1 to BA.5. Uh, it's not to say that all the other variants, like Delta, et cetera, they also had subvariants as well. But at that stage, we didn't actually give them any sort of names, and they didn't take off. So that's a bit of a nomenclature. Um, so I think that the problem at the moment is that not only are we seeing hospitalizations going up, um, we also got a very, very nasty flu season. And so you put that on top of things and we're starting to see the hospitals really, really um, uh, stretching at the seams now. Can you see a, a situation where we'll have masks being mandated again? Look, the only time that would happen would be if um, the hospital system got so overloaded that we would have to do something to reduce transmission. And yes, I can see that happening. And in the next few weeks, um, at least we're not in a situation like the UK, where there are simply basically no public health measures in place at all. So even if you're in, 
infectious in the UK, you don't have to isolate, which to me is the height of madness. So at least we have one or two public health measures still in place. Well, so if, if you get COVID now, you have to isolate for seven days, right? So that's at least something. Exactly. But, but you know, if what the, what the various state and territory governments have done and said, look, we're no longer interested in telling you what to do. We're leaving it up to each individual to assess their own risk and take their own measures. And that's fair enough, I suppose, to a certain extent. The only trouble is that if I'm vulnerable, which I am, whenever I go out, I wear a face mask. But then I'm surrounded by people potentially infectious who aren't wearing face masks. So in a sense, you know, wearing a face mask not just protects you, but it protects other people around you, from you, because you might be infectious. So I would actually like to see the government, various state and territory governments reintroduce face mask mandates on public transport if it's been removed and in retail settings. And I think that would do a lot to reduce transmission. Do you think that voluntarily we should all start to wear face masks again? Well, the trouble is that we're getting all this messaging that it's all over. And, and everyone's sick of COVID-19 and want it to be over. So it's very difficult now for the government to say, please wear face masks because it's contradictory. Mm. But at least, so what you're saying, though, is that very unlikely, if not totally impossible, to have more lockdowns. Yeah, I think that would, as I said, it would need a new variant around, which is more deadly than, than, than Delta. And I think that's, that's unlikely. I mean, you never can say never. Um, so I think the days of lockdowns are well and truly over. I don't think it would be politically palatable either, apart from anything else. No. In terms of impact on businesses, I mean, we are going to see more and more people being reinfected and hopefully they will, they will isolate. So it will have a small impact on business. But to be honest, I can't see this new wave that's starting to form because of BA.5 reaching the heights of the previous waves. And the reason now is because so many people have been infected with BA.1 and BA.2 that will at least have some immunity against BA.5. And I think that and our high vaccination rate will give us some protection and not see even higher numbers than we had in the previous waves. Very good. Thanks very much, Adrian. Not a problem. Nice to speak to you, Alan. Happy birthday to Colin Hay of Men at Work, who turns 69 today. And, uh, well, he's uh, born in Scotland, but he's as Aussie as Jimmy Barnes, let's face it. <laughs> and here's a little bit of Land Down Under, which is where we all come from. Apart from apart from Colin Hay, of course. You come from a land down And that's all from me. Have a great week.